0: The local nature of religious life means that it is difficult to generalize about religious interests and conviction in England on the eve of the Reformation. Medieval parishioners did not know that the Reformation was upon them, and even when it was, no one knew how far it would proceed. What is hopefully now apparent is that medieval parishioners, at least those in Bath and Wells, were not waiting for the Reformation. The medieval parish was a dynamic and creative place in its own right. One way of understanding this vibrancy is to look at parish religion in terms of community identity. This is not intended to be a romantic vision but rather it is one that acknowledges the laity's ability to invest in and participate in the parish in ways that reflected both individual and collective concerns. As with all communities, membership comes with obligations and burdens. Sometimes parish life could be confining and onerous, sometimes spiritually and socially comforting and affirming. It is not, then, surprising in the conservative world of West Country parishes that the laity of Bath and Wells dragged their feet in accepting Henry's reforms. Henry VIII's religious reforms, pushed through Parliament as he tried to divorce his first wife, brought visible change to Bath and Wells. Although his break with Rome was no doubt emotionally jarring, Rome was far away, the first legislation actually to have an impact on the parishes was Thomas Cromwell's rearrangement of the liturgical calendar. In 1532, he moved all church dedications to October and abolished the keeping of holidays between July 1st and September 23rd and during Westminster's legal terms. The exceptions were the Feasts of the Apostles, the Virgin Mary, St. George ascension, St. John the Baptist, All Saints, and Candlemas. Although masses could still be said, people could not take the day off from work. This was followed by the abolition of all lights before images and dissolution of all pilgrimage shrines in 1537. If we look at the parish records, however, we see that even these efforts were only partially effective. Banwell stopped collecting money for its St. Catherine and St. Mary lights, but it kept its Holy Cross gathering, renaming it the Easter Collection. Tentenhall still commemorated St. Margaret's Day with an ale. Henry also had difficulty in getting parishes to buy the English Bible he mandated in 1538. Most parishes in Bath and Wells did not make this purchase until 1541— when they were in danger of being fined. And as we saw in the last chapter, this was not because parishes as a rule did not own books. Henry left for later religious reformers the social and economic networks that parishes provided for their members. Still remaining were the ales, guilds, plays, bells, pews, and rood screens, many now minus their saints. Although the parish never existed, outside the hierarchical organization that invented and supervised it, the institutional strictures were not imposed on blank slates, and the parish assumed a greater role in the lives of the laity than merely that of a convenient unit for paying tithes and receiving religious instruction. Abolishing the images in the church may have left holes in the lives of the laity. But the community of the parish was much more than the sum total of its liturgical practices, just as the Reformers feared. There were important cultural dimensions to parochial religion. The parish was a unit that provided its members with responsibilities and support. Henry's reforms did not wipe this all away in his efforts to create an English church.